we're in the midst of a sermon series through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, and because we're doing an overview of the life of Jesus and the Gospel of Matthew is very long, we have selected just a few passages along the way. We can't do the whole book or we've decided not to. And we're highlighting a few. Last week and this week, we're in what's called the Sermon on the Mount, which begins in chapter 5 and runs through chapter 7. The Beatitudes, which is what Joel spoke about, the beat was that's the very front end of the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning of chapter 5. And uh, we'll be at the end of chapter 7, which, as we just sang, is the story of the two builders. So the Beatitudes and the story of the two builders are the bookends of the Sermon on the Mount. And then there's a whole lot of stuff in the middle that um, some of you are familiar with and some aren't. Um, so because the Sermon on the Mount is a, is a single sermon and has a theme throughout, uh, we'll be looking back at elements of that sermon even as we look at the story at the end this morning. How many of you have seen the, the Netflix series The Crown or parts of it? Some of you have, some of you haven't. It's, um, it chronicles the life of the current Queen of England, uh, Queen Elizabeth II. And uh, one aspect of the story that's interesting to me and concerns our talk today is her relationship to her sister, Margaret. She has a sister who's four years younger than she is. Um, Neither Elizabeth or her father, Prince Albert at the time, ever expected to be the ruler of Great Britain. That wasn't supposed to happen. Albert's brother abdicated the throne in the first year of his reign, and Albert suddenly became King George. Didn't really want to do that. Elizabeth's life changed as well because now she had to be prepared uh, to have that same thing happen to her. But before the abdication, Elizabeth and Margaret were just two sisters. Now, they didn't live exactly normal lives because they were princesses and they, they lived in a house of nobility, but they had a relationship to each other. They had all the highs and lows of being sisters, And by the time they were young women, they were really good friends and close confidants. But on the day that their father died, which, by the way, was 75 years ago last Sunday, something radical happened in their relationship. At the age of 25, Elizabeth became queen of Great Britain and all of its domain. Specifically, though, as relates to our story this morning, she became Margaret's queen. Now, if we put ourselves in Margaret's shoes, uh, the very day she's dealing with the loss of her father, she suddenly has to curtsy to her sister when her sister comes in the room. She has to call her your highness when she's addressing her. Um, That had to sting on some level. It's weird, even though she knew it was coming. She was still a sister, but she was now a subject She's still a friend and a confidant, but she will forever be subservient to her sister in role. That's her position for the rest of her life. Now, we don't really get that because we, we just don't do kings and queens over here in America. <laughs> but that, that's, that's, the way it, that's the way it is. That's the way it was and the way it is. In relationship to King Jesus, who is our brother, and our friend, because he has made it so, our relationship is the same. Even though he is our brother, he is our friend, he's our savior. We are forever his subjects. And the message of 
of Matthew, there's lots of stuff in Matthew, but the through, through line is that he's king. And we've been talking about that in the past weeks. The man who showed up in Judea and Galilee 2,000 years ago wasn't just a teacher, wasn't a, just a kind healer or a gentle friend and savior. He was all of those things. But he was first and foremost the returning king, the creator of the entire world and the universe showing up in the flesh. He's our king. And the main thrust of his teaching wasn't moral philosophy. The, the, the Sermon on the Mount is a word of challenge. It's a word of encouragement. It's a word of hope. It points us in the direction of life in Christ, and it makes it very clear that there's no life anywhere else. But it's also an exposition of how the scribes and the Pharisees and we misinterpret the law on our own terms in order to please ourselves instead of him. It's an invitation. It's a further call to repent. We heard John the Baptist in chapter 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We heard the Lord himself two chapters later say the exact same words, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Give your complete allegiance to Jesus Christ, our king, and seek his kingdom. So at the end of this Sermon on the Mount, we come to this story about two men and two houses, and let's read that together. We're in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 21 and through 27. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, which is a reference to the final day of the Lord, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Let's pray. Father, we ask you by your spirit to help us receive these words of your son, our Lord and King Jesus to understand them so that you might work them into our lives. Lord, you've searched us and you've known each of our hearts. Speak the word that you have for each one of us this morning. Speak to us corporately as well by your grace. Amen. Well, to understand this parable well, and any part of the Sermon on Mount well, we need to read the entire sermon and understand that this parable is the conclusion of the sermon. Here are just a couple of points about the sermon that I hope will be helpful. We don't have time to read the whole thing. As I said, it's best read and taken as a whole and understood. In the first century, the general populace of Israel were religious Jews. Obviously, the Romans were there too, but when I'm talking about the Jewish people were law-abiding citizens they saw themselves as citizens of the kingdom by their lineage Uh, the average person was a synagogue going law-abiding solid citizen obeyed the religious laws the civil laws 
worked hard for their families, took care of people in the community. That's, that's who lives in Israel. That's the who of who Jesus is addressing in this sermon. The what he addressed was the emptiness of much of their understanding and their practice of their religion. He particularly went after how much the teachers of the law had perverted the actual law. They'd missed the mark in their flawed understanding and teaching of it, even though they held themselves out not only as the teachers but people who lived by it. They were self-deceived, and they peddled their deceived version of the law. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is not new law, and it's not even, it's not an expansion. It's not a correction of the law of Moses. The man who was giving the Sermon on the Mount gave the law of Moses to Moses. He's not there correcting the law of Moses. He is there explaining it and correcting the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. He teaches as a king. There's a kingdom. It's his. It's a kingdom of life and peace. And he wants us not only to live in it, he wants us to own it. He wants to give us the kingdom. And the the scribes and the Pharisees have taught something that has completely missed that, that. The scribes and the Pharisees were fixed on their perception of the letter of the law and had completely missed the spirit of it. They surmised that if they just didn't do certain things, everything would be okay. As long as they didn't murder, steal, commit adultery, lie, eat, drink the wrong things. In other words, as long as they didn't look like sinners or hang around with other people who look like sinners, they'd be all right. But speaking to the gathered crowd, the Lord Jesus says repeatedly, I I know what you heard from your religious leaders, but I say this to you. And then he would go on to make it very clear that simple avoidance of outward sin is not the point of the law. The law of Moses and the Sermon on the Mount are first and foremost aimed at the heart of you and me, the heart of the person. The entire law has always been built on the first commandment, which is aimed squarely at our hearts. You shall have no other gods before me. And as the Lord unpacks that later, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Throughout the sermon, Jesus exposed their outward rule-keeping piety as completely unconnected to a heart for God. All of their show was for man and for self. Jesus was saying the same thing to what we might call checklist Christians, even those who call him Lord. That little passage right before this parable is like, hits us in the face. Those are folks who work very, very hard to be good, and they're confident in their basic goodness. Even those who cast out demons, healed people, and prophesied in his name, abstaining from obvious evil and even doing great things in his name doesn't by itself put us into fellowship with him. And that is what he wants. He wants to fellowship with us. He wants our hearts. He is shining a light to help us examine ourselves so that we can see and own our completely hopeless condition apart from him. Our basic goodness, frankly, does not exist. He's also speaking to other professing Christians who embrace Jesus as a wonderful person, teacher, but they don't take seriously what he actually said. 
they happily embrace him as a savior. They embrace, they're grateful for the blessing of the cross and the blood. They don't really have any interest in setting aside their own interests to pursue him. And I'm speaking in the third person like I'm not one of those people. So let me just correct that. That's me a great deal of the time. That's me. No interest in setting aside my own interests and pursuits to follow him. Last week, Joel mentioned Dallas Willard calls these vampire Christians. They, they're grateful for a little blood that was shed by Jesus, but that's all. They're not really happy to have a, they're happy to have a savior, but not necessarily a lord or a king. In, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls this cheap grace. Well, the sermon makes clear over and over again that he unequivocally demands our allegiance for our own good and happiness. And the first place he looks for allegiance is our heart. He's after our hearts. He wants our hearts to be his. Yes, he wants our hands, our mouths, our feet. He wants us to join him in good works. But it is out of the heart that the mouth speaks. That's what we read in Scripture. Unless our hearts are his, we cannot please him. Just that little section that we read right before the story Having heard isn't enough. Giving intellectual assent isn't enough. Acting on what he says is essential and is required. And acting is first an attitude of the heart before it is put into outward practice. It's our heart that continually seeks and finds. It's our heart that asks and receives. It's our heart that knocks that the door might be open to us. A great example of this is King David. Some of you know these stories and some don't, but King David is the most famous king in Israel, and he was said to have had a heart after God. He was covetous. He was a thief. He was an adulterer. He was a liar, and he was a murderer. According to the letter of the law, he deserved death more than he deserved the throne of Israel. If you just look at his actions and how he kept the letter of the law, you just say, get rid of this guy. You know, what's he doing here? But no, the Lord could see something beyond his outward actions. As the Lord said to Samuel in 1 Samuel, when he sent Samuel to anoint David, don't consider his appearance or his height. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, what they can see, the Lord looks at the heart. David's heart was repeatedly broken before the Lord. He had a contrite heart that pursued God. He wanted to know God. He wanted to fellowship with him in his presence. He wanted to be known by him. David loved the law, but he could not and did not keep it, at least not the letter. He could only come day after day looking for fresh mercies and relying on God entirely trusting in God, giving him his heart, pleading forgiveness. He trusted God in his broken humility. Returning to the parable, today's story. Those who first heard Jesus understood from the context that this parable is about two believers. This is not about a believer and an unbeliever. This is about two believers If they had ears to hear, they also understood that the two men and the two houses were way more similar to each other than they were different. In fact, what you could see with your eyes, they looked the same. The two guys and the two houses. 
The differences between them are not obvious to the naked eye. With some help from Martin Lloyd-Jones, who wrote a wonderful book on the Sermon on the Mount, here's some simil- we're going to look at some similarities and some differences. First, from the, um, when we look at the story right before this, the, uh, when we look at the passage we read that, comes, that precedes the story, we understand that both men are professing and practicing Jews. We can also just say Christians. Active members of the community both wanted the same things from the houses that they were building. They wanted a house that was comfortable and safe, kept the rain off. It's a place where they can enjoy life, raise their kids, do all the things that you want to do in a home. Second, the two houses appear to have been built in the same locality. We know that they were subject to the exact same weather patterns. There's talk of rising waters in both, of, both halves of the story, so perhaps they were built alongside a river. The story implies that the two houses were substantially identical to one another in every way that meets the eye. Two guys, two houses, very similar. These two similar men set out to build substantially similar houses. Well, how are the men in the houses different? I'm going to call them Mr. Albright and Mr. Jackson. Don't ask me where I got those names. They just popped into my head. I tried to think of names that nobody here had. Um, Mr. Albright is in a hurry. He's impatient. He's not interested in architecture, engineering principles, or or planning really at all. Uh, The rules that govern sound building practices are irrelevant to him. He's not inclined to think ahead to what might be down the road that's going to come. He wants to build a house quickly so that he can move in and enjoy it as soon as possible. Mr. Jackson, on the other hand, is patient. He understands the value of planning and respects the particular rules of sound construction. He hires experts in architecture and construction engineering. He knows that for his house to stand properly and even have square corners, it has to have a deep and solid foundation. Jordan talked about this a couple of weeks ago. He gave an illustration of building his deck, and before he put a single piece of lumber into the process, he had to dig deep footings. Talked about that. So Mr. Jackson is also wisely mindful of the stresses that may lie ahead that the structure will need to withstand. So although these two men look very similar on the outside, on the inside, their heart orientation is very different. In spiritual terms, Mr. Albright is determined to operate on his own terms, on his own schedule, while Mr. Jackson knows that if he were to live on his own terms, he and his project will ultimately fail. He needs and wants a foundation that is Christ. As a result, Mr. Albright's house is finished a whole lot sooner. He's already enjoying this house while Mr. Jackson's still working. We can imagine him sitting on the porch, gloating, scoffing, maybe even talk a little trash to to Mr. Jackson as his kids play in the yard and he sits on the porch enjoying the view, having a drink while Mr. Jackson continues to walk the site and supervise the workers on his house. Well, what about the differences between the houses? Again, just like the men, they're more similar than different. But hidden away, where you can't see, there are dramatic differences. Mr. Jackson's house is built on the rock. In the Apostle Luke's version of this story, it says that he dug deep to lay the foundation on the rock. 
Mr. Albright has built his house on the sand with no foundation at all. When the storms come, and they always will, it's too late. You can't run out and build a foundation at that point. Mr. Albright can't do anything but watch his life crumble around him. And the Lord's telling Mr. Jackson is a wise man and Mr. Albright's a foolish man. And the wise man, Jesus tells us, is an example of a person who hears the words of Jesus and acts on them. That's how the parable begins. What does this metaphor of building on the rock tell us about what it means to hear and to act? Takes us back again to this thrust of the Sermon on the Mount. The thrust is that Jesus is the king. He has all authority. And he wants, and we owe him our complete allegiance. The allegiance of our hearts in everything. That there's, there's life in him and there isn't life anywhere else. To build on the rock, to act on what we hear, is first to give our hearts to the Lord Jesus every day. Think back on that story of David. If you haven't thought about the story of David a lot in your life, do it. It's, the guy was a mess in so many outward ways we wouldn't necessarily want him as a friend. The heart is what the Lord's after. To build on the rock, to act on what we hear, is to give our hearts to the Lord every day, to humbly keep our hearts soft and dependent on him. We read this earlier in Psalm 37 in the opening prayer. Put your trust in the Lord and do good. The Lord will help him because they seek refuge in him. To embrace the discipline of God, to prepare for the tempest and trial by digging deep into Jesus Christ, to embrace our utter dependence on him. It's to examine ourselves and see the propensity of our heart to wander, our commitment to self-orientation and self-actualization, our commitment, our love of autonomy. I love autonomy. I just want to be in charge of me. I don't particularly need to be in charge of you unless you're blocking my goals but i love autonomy and the lord is like no you're not autonomous and this demand that i have and that we have to fashion our own reality according to our terms is is deadly when we sing prone to wander lord i feel it the hymn isn't about murder adultery stealing lying it's about a heart that seeks its own that's the problem with me I actually haven't murdered anybody lately. I don't do those other things, but my heart wanders from home all the time. And so we sing, here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it for yourself. The Sermon on the Mount invites us, encourages us, commands us to repent of looking for life in the world and instead to seek the kingdom of heaven. And it repeatedly makes it clear that whether we are natural rule keepers or scoff laws, we cannot simultaneously seek the kingdom of heaven and seek our own kingdom. You can't serve two masters. Your heart's going to belong to one or the other. That's in the other parts of the sermon. By the grace of God imparted by the Spirit, we get to choose the patient way. 
we get to choose the way that pays attention to the Lord's words of life and the Bible, Bible about how to live, way, the way that digs deep to build a foundation of true fellowship in Christ, with Christ, the way that believes and understands that apart from him, we, we're really, we're not going to do anything that lasts. So by the grace of God, we get to choose that slow, patient way, or we will choose the impatient, rushed, poorly built life that will collapse in the storm. And in the end, we will miss out on fellowship, the enjoyment of fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That is what we're made for. It's what he longs for. It's why he made us. He wants to have fellowship with us. Is that not amazing? Eugene Peterson's rendition of the first beatitude, the ones that Joel preached through last week, in the message is, you are blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more room, there's more of God and his rule. So my encouragement this morning is to let the Lord's light bring you to the end of yourself. It's there that we find deep joy, real peace, in his presence. In another of David's psalms, Psalm 139, David pleads to the Lord to examine his heart. In fact, that psalm begins, you have examined my heart. You've examined me. You know me better than I know myself. And it ends with a prayer, Lord, please keep examining my heart. If you're looking for some place to meditate in the coming weeks, try Psalm 139 and Psalm 51. Look, we are certain. We are completely certain that none of our efforts to keep the law of God will save us. That's his message to these people who are trying to be saved by how they interpret the law and do it. Paul states unequivocally in Romans 3 that we are justified before God by grace, a gift from our Father through the redemption that is in Christ by the shed blood of our Lord and King Jesus. But we also know from James, that faith without works is dead and that intellectual knowledge is not enough. James says, look, the demons can quote scripture. Therefore, our response to this great gift from our Father cannot just be a casual belief. We are called and expected to be those who live self-examined lives that are set apart to God and to the pursuit of his kingdom and to be such people. We need to be wise builders who dig deep foundations down to the rock that is Christ. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, there's a lot in it that sounds hard, maybe even negative, but it's far more positive than it is negative. Far more positive than it is prescriptive. Thou shalt not is not the point. It's an invitation to inherit the kingdom of heaven, to be comforted with real comfort, to be, to, to be those who inherit the earth, to be satisfied, receive mercy, see God, be a child in constant fellowship with God of the universe. It's an in invitation to your best life. It really is a self-examined life set apart to God and his kingdom and lived with in fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit is our best possible life, a glorious life of real joy and peace. There's no greater life. So I, I say together, 
because this whole message is at me. I said that already. I'll say it again. I am not standing up here telling you, oh, yeah, I figured this out here. And this is, okay, now the rest of you people need to get it together. I'm, this, is, this is for me. I'm, it was for David. It was every day. You know, we have that psalm, his mercies are new every day. David wrote that because he knew it <laughs> by experience. So rejoice, repent. Let's repent of our so-called lives because the kingdom of heaven has drawn near in the person of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I come. I want my heart to be yours. You know how much my heart, my heart is prone to wander and how much the eyes of my heart get attached to so many other things. Oh, Lord, be the king of my heart. Keep capturing my heart with what little faith I have, Lord, and you know how little it is so many times. I give you my heart. Take my heart, Lord, and let it be consecrated to you and you alone. Lord, help us in this. Help us in our weakness, we pray. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. Erica? Every week we have an opportunity to respond, to to do an act of faith, an act and it's of faith, um, by taking communion to this King, Jesus. King Jesus is inviting you and if some folks could come up to hand hand out the um, the bread and the cups, that would be great. Um, King Jesus is inviting you right now to to give him your heart. This he said the night he was betrayed that this wafer that's in here represents his body that was broken for us that he broke for us. And that this juice here represents his blood that was shed. It's the blood of the new covenant. And in Ephesians 2, it says that we, in the old covenant, unless we're of Jewish descent, we were excluded. We were excluded from that old covenant, the old covenants. But now in this new covenant, it says that we who were far off are brought near by the blood of Christ. And so I invite you to take this wafer that that represents his body that was broken for us and I I invite you to to have a conversation with the Lord about your heart. Wherever your heart is, if you feel like you're far off or if you feel like you're near to Christ, the fact is that we have an invitation from Christ himself, from Jesus our king to be that we've been brought near by his blood. And we can declare to ourselves, to our bodies, to our soul, to our heart. We declare it to God and we declare it to each other as we take this. We're declaring to him, Jesus, you are my king and I give you my heart. And you can have a conversation with the Lord. He knows your heart. And he's not surprised by what's in it. He's not appalled. (laughs) It's not news to him. And he still invites you and he still wants you to be in fellowship with him. Just like Ken said, it's what he came for. He is the one who's inviting us to fellowship with him.